Hi, welcome. My name's Elijah, and I'm hosting today my good friend, Chris Rogers. Um, we've spent years together, um, you know, pursuing God together. He used to be a part of my small group, but he's also a psychologist. He is a marriage and family therapist. He wrote a field guide to relationships. And we're going to talk about a very vulnerable topic. Um, it, it's having PTSD and CPTSD, and we're both going to share parts of our story and just have a discussion about it. So welcome, Chris. Thanks, buddy. I'm excited to be here. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm excited to have you on. So tell me your story, your background with uh, PTSD. How'd you get it? <laughs> How did I get PTSD? It's probably a handful of moments um, where PTSD doesn't always happen in a, in a one-time thing, especially complex or CPTSD. But the biggest moment for me was when I was really young, um, mm -hmm. getting really heavy right into it, Elijah. Um, when I was about four years old, I uh, lived in a small neighborhood and was invited by a couple of the older kids in the neighborhood to come outside and play. I think they were looking for uh, my sibling and they weren't available. And so they invited me and I went out and basically they had me go over to another neighbor's house, going to their playground and took advantage of me, basically. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I was four. They probably were 11 or 12 years old. And... Uh, and obviously had me do inappropriate things. I'm not going to get into all the details. Mm -hmm. um, and that in itself obviously was severely um, hurtful and, and damaging and scary and weird. Um, a lot of that memory was even um, sort of repressed, if you want, for, for years sure. afterwards. Um, but I, in my own journey, my own healing, both spiritual and clinical, I discovered that equally or even more so what hurt me was even though my parents who loved me and cared for me had no clue what had just happened when I got back to the house and they didn't uh, see me know what was going on tell me it was okay you know hold mm -hmm. me hug me work through that me that they had no clue what was going on so they just acted like nothing happened I, I realized years later though that in my four-year-old brain that them not helping me through that actually was equally as damaging, equally as hurtful, um, and caused some real PTSD for needing to be seen, known, heard, and cared for. And when I don't feel that, how I get triggered, how I can actually mm -hmm. have some some real struggle. So that's probably the main bulk of the story. That's that's kind of what happened. Was this an event where you were physically abused in the process, like they were holding you down, or, I mean, you're a four-year-old kid and just don't know yeah. any better, and you look back and go, wow, that's weird. Yeah, no, um, it was more about um, them having me do things relationally, you know, in that juxtaposition of like 12 years and four year olds and telling me to do things and coercing me to do things that I didn't have a voice or the power or understanding of how to handle no. that or what to do. Um, you know, I was four. So, you know, definitely recollections of not wanting to do and not knowing 
what was going on, feeling sort of obligated or required or that I didn't have any choices. We talk about sort of removing that power, removing that mm-hmm. voice definitely was removed in that situation where I, I didn't really feel like I had any options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that certainly causes PTSD, which is by the way, we haven't even defined post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is right. you just kind of have an event, you go through your life, and then one day your your body or your anxiety or your fear starts telling you this event has done something to me that I don't know how to process and I'm afraid all the time or I'm anxious all the yeah. time. And yeah. so that is certainly a terrible thing. And I, I certainly have my own story. Um, I talk about it in the movie where, you know, a, a, a relative um, just beat me a lot. And I would, you know, zone out and think about baseball while it was happening. And you just think, right. well, I've got to get out of this. And once you're out, you you feel relief. And then years later, you realize, oh, my anxiety doesn't turn off. Or right. I'm I'm hyper depressed. And so this is something that's very common in the church and people have trauma. It's natural. Um, right. In fact, it's very normal to have a traumatic response to trauma, <laughs> you know, and right. we, we don't normalize it enough, I, I don't think. But right. once you kind of go through that and you go, oh, no, this is me. And I don't know how to put these pieces back together. And so I wanted to ask you, what was your journey of discovering you had trauma? And then what were some of the steps you started taking? Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, Let let me say this, right? Indulge me like post-traumatic stress disorder or CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Most people know that now. But I do this so much that, you know, people think they know what boundaries are and they don't know what boundaries right. are and that kind of right. thing, right? So, so post-traumatic. So um, after a traumatic event, still having a stress disorder. So it's, it's something happened to me previously and after the event, I'm having a uh, mental, emotional, and physical reaction very similar, if not the same, now – 5, 10, 20, 30 years later, after what happened previously, we first saw this, and most people recognize it like in soldiers, right? Like the car backfires, and all of a sudden they're ducking under a table. And what happens is, is that that trigger caused their body and brain to think they're back in warfare again. And you don't mm-hmm. have a lot of control over that. You don't have a lot of impact over that immediate response. And so, yeah, that that's what that is, right? Um, and so... What can be harder for us, what was harder for me is I I didn't, I wasn't in the military like you. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to war or anything like that. So it's sometimes hard to understand. It was hard for me to understand how what I'm dealing with is PTSD because I wasn't actually beaten, right? I wasn't, I wasn't like that. So how, how can I have that? How can I have that struggle? How can I have such this intense experience years later and the truth was, is I was in my, I was in my master's degree program and probably God and just wisdom of, of going through that process. I, I did some of my own counseling and in that 
counseling, right? Seeing a counselor, some of it was from addiction recovery because I had a handful of addictions I needed to work through, which we'll get back to later, which is like how I was coping and dealing with my addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what the counselor said. The counselor said, you have PTSD. And even though I should know better, it surprised me and probably took me years to fully grasp what that meant for me personally. Mm-hmm. And there's the stigma that only weak people get it. That if you're <laughs> if you're mentally strong, then you just don't have trauma. And so, I think that's a part of the process is to actually take a step back and go, "I'm a human. I've got a brain, um, biological stuff I don't even understand, and so I don't know what degree of trauma." I can take before it starts coming up at at another point in life. And so I think there's a shame associated with experiencing it that I certainly had to go through. Yeah, I would say my personal experience and professional experience is that I don't have any research to back this up, but a lot of people who actually have PTSD tend to be people that do experience situations and life as a whole very viscerally anyways mm-hmm. and so that's that's not a weakness in a lot of ways that's actually a strength but they're so connected with people and space and what's going on that they actually it scars them because they're so experiencing that experience that those moments those tragic traumatic events so deeply emotionally spiritually mentally that it hits them and attaches to them quite significantly, which to me actually is evidence of a strength place that ends up hurting them. Does that, does that make sense? Sure, sure. And so tell me about you start, well, I'm, I'm not sure your PTSD becomes aware in your mind before you start medicating right. it. And so why, why do you medicate it? And tell me how you did and how you realize it's even medication rather than I'm just trying to have fun or feel good. Right. Yeah, that's a, I, I don't even know. I'll do my best to answer that question, right? So first and foremost, since I was introduced to, excuse me, <clears throat> sexual realities at a very young age, you know, exposed to something that you should not know about until a decade plus later, having that carnal knowledge is something that I began to experiment with, right? Like here's mm-hmm. something that, you know, which is a lot of times within trauma, what we do, we repeat that very thing, right? Mm-hmm. That there, even though the traumatic event can be very damaging and scary, it also releases endorphins and, can, and, and there can be a bit of a high associated. Sure. It. And so actually you can get a little bit attached to, going to those places again to get that high, to get that serotonin, neopinephrine boost, that kick, that actually is a bit of a buzz, right? A runner's high is the same thing, that you can actually get attached to that experience through unhealthy means like um, risky behavior, um, sexual behavior, angry behavior, you know, those kind of things can actually kick those into motion. So anyway, so for me... um, yeah, so basically those experiences became something that I that I repeated for myself and with other people of what it was to be sexual. I never abused anybody. 
in that same dynamic, but still repeating some of those sexual behaviors, if that makes sense. Sure. And, and that became very normal to me in my struggle. But growing up in the church, I knew that was wrong. Obviously, I knew this is a problem. I knew it was wrong. So even that I, though I didn't know that was me dealing with trauma, I still knew it was a problem. I knew it was something I needed to deal with or overcome. I remember praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, you know, all the time every year for God to help me with that. But I never told anybody. I never talked to anybody about it. And then when I discovered drugs and alcohol in early, early uh, high school, late middle school, whatever that was, you know, that became another place to sort of cope and medicate through life, right? So I said part of my wound was needing to feel seen and known and and whether or not people are are caring for me or Mm -hmm. not. And the drug world afforded me that ability to find connection with people through, through using drugs, through partying, through sleeping with girls and whatever that is. And so I don't, I'm trying to answer your question. I wasn't aware of it all then, but I, I know that. And I knew then I was in a lot of pain and I was trying to feel Mm -hmm. better. And I was able to manipulate people to be my friend. I was able to manipulate women to give me their bodies. And I was able to use drugs and alcohol, all of that to numb myself and to cope and Mm -hmm. try to feel better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something most people don't understand about addiction. They think it's about feeling pleasure rather than numbing pain. And I think yeah. that is such a part of, I just don't want to feel anxiety anymore. I don't want to feel depressed anymore. This is an escape. Right. Um, it's That's certainly a part of my story. Um, and... I think it's also hard for Christians who go, all right, I think Jesus resurrected. He's transformed my life at some level to go, why am I medicating? Why yeah. Why is this thing happening? And where's this promise of joy? And isn't that the fruits of following Jesus? And um, so did you ever face Christian disillusionment? as you're going on your journey of, wow, this seems like a little too overpromise and underdeliver on, on the gospel side. Yeah. I think my, my story, I have to think about it maybe a little bit different in that. Sure. One thing I would say is, is my, my experience of the goodness and grace of God doesn't meet very well with some people's theology and, and, and historically my own theology okay. to where, so my, my, we went to various different churches. We were in the vineyard for a little while. And then my parents actually had a home church for a little while with some friends. And some people saw some gifting in me and they would call me out. And so basically what happened is I'd be out partying, drinking, having sex, whatever, Friday, Saturday night, and then Sunday morning going with my parents to their home church. And I, I didn't know what it was then, but I'm praying and prophesying over people on Sunday morning, right? Mm-hmm. Now that's, that shouldn't happen, but the gifts are a gift of grace, not of maturity. And so it was able to happen. So even though I was very angry with God um, for many years because of what had happened and because of my struggle and because he didn't take it away or make it better, I definitely sort of walked away over time away from God and got more and more into just partying and wanting to be a hippie and just all the things 
a part of me never fully gave up on God. I, I can't, I can't fully explain that. Like I mm-hmm. never fully was like, um, Christianity isn't real or God isn't real. It, for me, it was more about why am I, why don't I get it? Why, why don't I get the healing? Why don't I, why don't I get the help that I need? What, what is it about me that you won't love or you won't rescue or won't help? And that was my disillusionment, which came out in anger towards God. God and, and, and is God good? Is it God good towards me? Yeah. And I think that's also something people struggle with is they look at themselves and they go, God, I, I want the fix. I want the instantaneous prayer. And do you just not like me? Do you just see something so dark in me? Right. And uh, there's also the hypocrisy of you're medicating and at the same time you're doing this church stuff and that's got to create conflict. And so I think that I want to not like promote sin, but I want to normalize this process for trauma survivors and talk yeah. about, well, what does it mean to respond to God's grace in this brokenness. Yeah. It's like how to know that the standard is righteousness and yet at the same time, appreciate that you're a work in progress. Right. Mm -hmm. Let let me say this first and and I'll try to come back to that for whatever it's worth. When um, the part of my story is that there were things that God miraculously took away and then some things he didn't. Okay, tell um, me about those. Which was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful and a little bit confusing. So went away to college, thought I was getting away from the drug culture, got right into it immediately at orientation day um, in college, spent the next year and a half, you know, doing okay in school, but, you know, down in Atlanta, going to raves, doing ecstasy, LSD, just drugs, alcohol, you know, just the full on party mode. And then it was coming time, short version, it was coming time to kind of figure out what I was going to do next because I was only going to that college for two years. And for some reason, figuring out what next took me to, I need to figure out this God thing. Am I really going to be a Christian? Do I really believe in Christianity? There's a beautiful story there. But long story short, over that, that, that Christmas break, I came to, yes, I do believe in God. I do believe in Jesus. I do want to serve God. Fast forward a couple of months, I'm, I'm having conversations with God again on a regular basis. And I'm actually um, in my apartment. Nobody was there in my apartment. I had just smoked some marijuana, smoked a bowl. I'm sitting on my back porch of this apartment, smoking a cigarette and drinking a beer, having a conversation with God. And as I put my foot back into the apartment, he said, you don't have to do this anymore. And he took away drugs and alcohol just like that. Mm, that's beautiful. Just boom. It was all gone. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while, you know, fast forward six months, nine, probably nine months, a year, whatever that was, changed my life, changed direction, changed school. My history of sexual struggle came back with a vengeance. I, I was freed from so many things, but there was a place of healing. And one of my first traumatic experiences and first vices of medication through through sexuality through sex through pornography that did come back so i had to spend time healing and working with god through that and my ptsd Mm -hmm. 
But at the same time, he took away all of that stuff in an instant. And so I've experienced mm-hmm. both. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think if you're listening, um, one of the important things theologically to do is to realize that Christ is our Savior and the Spirit is our sanctifier. And he pursued us when we were in a broken state before we knew him. And yeah. he is the one that makes us holy. <clears throat> and it's receiving his grace that is often the transformative side. And I know there's a lot of people out there who go, look, you know, sin's bad. And I 100% agree with Scripture on this. But what I'm saying is this. Um, only God can do some parts of our transformation. There's a me part. I have got to learn the the will side, but there's a learning to feast on the Holy Spirit, learning to feast on Christ. And so, Chris, can you, I think you have a very unique perspective on uh, conviction. We talked about this on our men's retreat where you were talking about how conviction isn't just, our, well, there's a part of it saying, God, I'm wrong. But it's not white knuckling it after that. It's it, it's God inviting us right. into something. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one of my one of my sayings is, <laughs> every communication from God is at first an invitation. Mm-hmm. And so how I was raised and sort of taught is, if God says something to you, the expectation is immediately and perfectly respond, pick yourself up, and make it happen. Sure. And as much as I absolutely desire a heart to respond well always, to to be trusting and, and faithful and obedient right away, the reality is, is that's not how I, I've, I've been able to operate yet, right? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to conviction, and I have a whole thing about how I believe we do grow and learn, um, the short version is I believe we really receive a, a revelation of God's goodness or of his righteousness, then, then that causes a conviction in our heart. Some, something mm-hmm. about what God just showed me doesn't match how I'm living in my behavior. That's mm-hmm. conviction. And I'll, I'll hit this quick, but we're not going to spend, I think, a whole lot of time there. That births, that process of conviction does prepare the soil and birth repentance, which is to, to, to think differently, right? And a lot of times what happens is we think as soon as we have a conviction, we're supposed to automatically be able to think differently. And my experience with God is that's a much more relational exchange and process uh, of learning to let that conviction run its course. I'll finish it by saying learning how to live from that new thought, which is what what uh, repentance is, that's how I become renewed is when that that revelation of new thought mm-hmm. becomes my new normal. That's where I'm healed and that's where I'm living from. As far as conviction goes, Elijah, is I believe that we are allowed to engage with God and ask for help, that we can partner with him and, and recognize that he's doing a work in us. Mm-hmm. And I think the key element, I could say a whole lot. I've kind of written a book about this, but I believe the whole element is learning that the cross and grace affords us to be vulnerable and transparent with God. I believe that the original plan in the garden was nakedness, which is nothing hidden between mm-hmm. us and God. And the cross affords us to live again as nothing hidden with God. And so when we're experiencing conviction, conviction of sin, 
we can talk to God about it. We can ask for his help. We can be honest. I've been as rude in saying, I don't want to change that yet. I don't, I, I, I still like that. I still prefer that. And, and by, for me, by staying in a conversation with him about it and dealing with my ridiculousness, he has changed my heart. He's renewed my heart. He increased conviction to help me see the cost of that belief, the cost of that behavior until I was able actually to, to fully yield it to him. So I don't know if that answers your question. But no, I, I think that's good stuff. Um, and I think one of the illusions, I think, because we're intellectual beings, you got a frontal cortex, we can think something's objectively true, and then there's parts of ourselves that we doesn't want to do it. And so you right. have to expose that part to God by just going, yeah, I have this desire in me, and this is me. And, yeah. like, we don't don't like to be sinful. Um, we right. don't like to be broken and bad in our minds. And so we hide those parts and then they're driving us all the time down yeah. patterns where if we would just go to God and just be like, I feel this, I want this, I, I cannot fix this, um, and invite him in, oftentimes he will start doing things in your life. And the hard part is sometimes the Holy Spirit starts working on stuff other than what we want him to work on. And you don't get to play God to yourself. I think that's one of the things you had, you and I talked about right. a lot um, was just like first rule of getting free is you're not God. Yes. Yeah, I want to I try to give you even a little skip, scriptural backup on this. So a good study to do is actually Romans um, 1 and 2 and Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans 12, 1 and 2 and Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And mm -hmm. I always get them a little bit confused, but I, I think that I got this right here. It says, um, let me, let me, let me just summarize it for you, I guess. But ultimately he's saying, you know, let's, one of them says, they both talk about overcoming sinning. Let's run this race and strip off this mm -hmm. sin that so easily trips us up. Or, you know, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let's let's mm -hmm. be awesome. Let's be amazing. And then I believe it's here in, in, in Hebrews 12, too. It basically says a how-to, which the Bible doesn't always give you a how-to. So how do you overcome sin? How, mm -hmm. how do you grow? How do you deal with sin? I think growing up in the church that the answer was pray more read the Bible more, s just stop it, right? Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and make it happen. And what the scripture says is we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our, fa our faith. Mm -hmm. And so to me, this is what we're talking about. And what does it mean to keep our eyes on Jesus? And to me, that's grace. Mm -hmm. I believe he's in a perpetual state of, yeah, I know that's not good, but I love you. I'm proud of you dust yourself up. Let's keep moving forward. And he's way more encouraging than I want to be in my battle with sin. I, I want to mm -hmm. look at that sin and try to fix it, try to make it better. And the Bible says you can't fix sin by focusing on sin. You can't fix a mm -hmm. problem by focusing on a problem. You can only, to be a little cheesy, fix sin, fix a problem by focusing on the answer. Right. And to me, in the briefest of form, that is what grace is. That is the experience in, of 
of feasting on the Holy Spirit, like you said, mm -hmm. and living in truth and digesting truth until that actually changes your heart, melts your heart, and, and renews your heart. Yeah, um, I perfectly agree with that. Sometimes when we sit in rooms with the lights go <laughs> off, uh, Sorry, is it motion sensor? Motion That's sensor. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that was really helpful for, for me, because we're trying to kind of transition into what helped you. Um, yeah. was the idea of a window of tolerance is that, you know, if I get too overstimulated, I'm going to have a trauma cycle or triggers. And, um, and so I need to find out what that window of tolerance is. And the hard part, I think, for people is realizing how low that can be. Mm -hmm. um, and it's humbling, but I think it comes back to this idea I'm not God. I am a finite being and accepting mm. my humanity and just going, if God can love me as this finite, I I need to learn to love myself. And what I mean by that is treat myself like God would treat me um, or wants me to treat myself and yeah. just go, all right, this is what I can give. And I'm not pushing past that. And that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's about letting God meet you where you are, not where right. you think you should be, not where you right. think you could be, but actually understanding that the point is, is he's meeting you where we are. We, we tend to understand that when we get saved, right? He loves you mm -hmm. in your sin. He loves you where you are. And somehow we think that the only way to keep that is by we're supposed to be doing something instead of the only way to actually grow is stay in the place of he loves you as you are. And that's mm -hmm. how you actually grow. And that's how you mature. So mm -hmm. let me ask you, how has God met you where you are? What's some stories of you encountering God in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your either addictions and sins or yeah. PTSD? I'll tell you. Let's go supernatural story and let's go providential practical. story. Practical. Yeah, yeah. Super practical. Uh, so here's a supernatural story. I went on a retreat and um, Melissa Casey was her name. It's Michael Burdor's daughter was giving this talk about the love of God. And I just – you. If you're in church, you hear sermons a thousand times. I've heard this one a thousand right. times. But as I'm sitting, like water just starts dripping out of my eyes. I'm like, what is going on? Which, of course, is tears. I feel nothing emotionally. <laughs> oh, wow. And then uh, she, after the service, she just says, I feel the Holy Spirit wants us to hug each other, and I don't mean the, like, little hug, but, like, the, like, hold somebody for 30 seconds and let go, you know, if, if, if God does something through it, hang on. And so when I go to hug this guy, it's like I have an open vision of Jesus, and I see mm. his heart burning, and I start sobbing, and I cry for three hours holding this guy. 
I cannot stop. And then, you know, it's all over. We kind of talk about it. And then I don't learn the guy's name. And so me and my friends joked about that being my spiritual one-night stand. (laughs) As just this guy, like he was there for God to do something in my life. But like that was totally awkward. But I I was like, (laughs) I really felt the love of God through that. But at the same time, I will have these visitations where I feel the presence of God and my PTSD's on. I'm, I'm still feeling triggered. And, right, um, right, right. In the midst of it. Yeah. And it, I'm like, God, you're here. Do the healing, whatever you do in other people's testimonies. But I, though, it's meeting God's presence at times that's supernatural. Um, the super practical, I think, is friends, um, people to process with, people when I'm triggered who'll just listen to me rant. You know, like you you want to be able to learn to express yourself. And this thought's just coming to my mind, Chris. Um, when I was 17, someone at a church camp asked me, they're serving ice cream And they're like, do you want vanilla or do you want chocolate ice cream? And I remember in my mind thinking, what does that person want me to have? Mm -hmm. And like I put on this totally false self. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Lord has certainly increased my voice where I can say what's going on, talk about relationships and emotions at a level that was unimaginable, you know, 25 years ago. And so those would be some examples. What about for you? Um, What do you feel like? Yeah, I was going to say, I actually have an interestingly similar story. It was in in a church in Georgia, a vineyard. If I remember correctly, because this is over 20 years ago now, I think his name was Chaz. And he was a tall, big dude. And, and it was uh, sort of after the sermon kind of ministry time thing. And I, I don't remember everything. I just remember the same thing. Like, <clears throat> for some reason, I gave him a hug. And I ugly bawled for a very, yeah. very long time. And I remember when I finally pulled off, he was sweaty and I was sweaty. Not mm-hmm. my preferred experience. But his shirt was soaked with tears and snot. and mm-hmm. But it was like God was giving me this big hug, this, this mm-hmm. welcome back sort of bear hug. And I was still a hot mess. I was still – I had a girlfriend at the time, and we were hanging out and doing things. And, you know, and so, yeah, definitely mm-hmm. that. I think an important one for me, and I've shared this with other people, is that let's see how personal I want to get in this is in the struggle with sexual sin in the struggle with sex addiction and and pornography, the most, one of the most specific experiences for me, and I've encouraged this to other people is learning to let God meet you in the moment you feel and believe you are least deserving of love. Sure. Right. So you've had your, brief or whatever for foray into pornography you're you're trying to w- walk away if anybody any christians ever been there we're making prayers we're making promises i can't believe that happened jesus i'm sorry mm-hmm. i'll never do that again what, whatever you feel absolutely unlovable 
And if and when you could start to accept and realize that he loves you in those moments, that, that, that he loves you just as much in that moment as the two weeks you think you need to behave well for him to love you again and be in relationship, that when you start to let him meet you in those moments is when your healing actually starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of letting him speak to you, minister you, encourage you, sit with you, help you, whatever that is in those moments. And I have had times with that or others where I believed I just was undeserving of love. Another couple quick stories. These are some of my big stories, but times where I realized in my heart, I felt and believed about God things that you should never believe and feel about God. Um, Since I've shared my story earlier, I'll say that. So I was molested at four years old. I had an experience with God 20-ish, 21, 22 years later where I asked him to protect me from my own tendencies. Uh, I was trying to move. I was trying to look for a job. Somebody told me I had a job. I asked God to make sure I didn't get too excited ahead of myself because I'm a visionary, so I see everything as a door. And I was like, don't let me get too excited. They, they said I had the job. I spent the next three days planning how to move my family. And then they, they left me a voicemail and saying, hey, sorry, we decided to go another direction. Click. Mm. A few months after that, I realized ugly, 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 inappropriately, that I felt like God had taken advantage of me. That, that, that's in the context of relationship that I felt as a child being taken advantage of, I mm-hmm. realized in my heart, that's how I felt towards God. Mm-hmm. And he brought me to a moment and I had a couple other moments of learning the value of this, where I had to be real with myself and with God, that that's how I felt, mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of, bear with me, the equivalent of accusing God of molesting me. That's, that's intense, but that's, that's how I felt relationally. And when I brought that to him, his response was, I know it's okay. Mm -hmm. And, and having that exchange of this is how I really feel Mm -hmm. and experiencing his forgiveness and kindness for that Mm -hmm. without even a, without even a wisp of wanting to correct it. Just, Mm -hmm. this is where you're at. I I accept Mm -hmm. you in your ugliness, in your moment right Mm -hmm. here. Those are the kind of things that have absolutely Mm-hmm. appropriately scarred, scarred me and changed me for life to know that he is good and kind no matter what in all things. Mm-hmm. Just as you were saying that, I, you know, I, I was just filling tears well up in my eyes. And I just want to talk to people right now who are listening. God is kinder than you realize. Yes, and he yes. is the pursuer in the relationship. He does not abandon and... It's okay to tell God what you feel in an authentic way. Um, And in fact, he invites us into that. He wants nothing hidden. Um, That is what confession is. And confession doesn't mean you've forsaken Christ. To feel like you've been abused by God is to just tell him. Um, And it doesn't mean God's the sinner. Of course, we all know that. God's never sinned. He's never done anything wrong. But our hearts don't know that. And like children need to tell their parents stuff, and it just, like, doesn't make sense. You've got to give that part of your heart a voice and tell it to Jesus. And he is more kind and gracious than you realize in this and stronger than you realize. 
my experience of that is that there there is an inappropriate use of that, right? There's just sure. callous and care and carelessness You're towards right. God, which we're not talking about that. Yeah. We're, right? We're talking about honest, vulnerable truth and and releasing that. Mm-hmm. And I would say my experience for myself, and I've been in the presence of walking other people through that, is mm-hmm. That God experiences and interprets that kind of vulnerable vulnerability as faith. Mm-hmm. To be real about how you feel about God and how you perceive God, knowing that it's not right to feel that way, and to risk still being that vulnerable and honest is a very it takes faith to be that honest. It takes faith that He's not going to strike you dead. He's not going to come against you. And so risking that kind of honesty, God, I believe, actually sees as something as faith. And we know that faith is what pleases him. Yeah. And I I mean, how many times did Jesus say, like, don't be a hypocrite, a hypocrite, someone that wears a mask. And so you, right. a real part of you fills this before God and you've put a mask on to him where you go, everything's OK. Instead of like, hey, we got to talk and it's a hard talk and it's going to be an ugly yeah. talk. But I want you to know this, and God's all knowing. But I want to say it to you. Maybe is yeah. The... Let's address that. Let's address the fact that what I have heard a million times um, is how people are like, um, God knows. God already knows us. He knows everything. I don't sure. have to say that. So, what are your thoughts on the idea that God already knows this? I don't have to say it. Well. I do think God knows all things at all times. I think it's the opposite of everything the Bible teaches not to say it um, because, I mean, what is confession? God knows every one of your sins. And so if you, you want a relationship with God, he came in flesh and treated people as persons. And so I have to talk to persons. And so if right. whatever... The times when I hide stuff from God under the guise, like let let's be honest, it, it it's it's some type of spiritual thing going on where you feel it's okay to hide your feelings toward God, and so I don't know other than Which the to Bible say, would tell us yeah. is shame, right? I mean, sure. Adam and Eve exposed sure. that one. That's only shame. Sure, and it's uh like. It's an affront to the cross that said, look, there's no shame in this relationship anymore. I, right. I don't want that type of relationship with you. I've yeah. given my blood for you. And so, Chris, what would you say to Can I person? answer that question? Go ahead. Quick? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I could give a lot of examples. I like this one because it's in my head right now. If you've ever experienced the positive benefit of expressing your love and an affinity for God and that mm-hmm. relational exchange of adoration, of praise and worship and experience the benefit of that, he already knows mm-hmm. that's how you feel. What, right? He, he doesn't, mm-hmm. You don't need to tell him that for him to know that. But in that relational vulnerability and that uh, relational exchange, you're affected. And I would mm-hmm. say it's the very same thing with our struggles with our hurts, with how we really feel what's going on that we're tempted to hide, it's in the relational exchange that we're affected, right? Because a mm-hmm. couple, couple of things is you cannot encounter God and not be changed. 
that's a complex thing, but that's true in some way or fashion. If you encounter God in any degree, it does impact mm-hmm. you. Um, I had another thought. I can't remember what it is, but the point being is in the exchange of vulnerability and honesty where you show up because you're showing up to yourself and to God, there is value. There is impact to that. And when you don't really show up in the relationship and talk about it, the spouse, a family member, or God, you're not really showing up to yourself either. You're mm-hmm. not really dealing with it yourself. And so anyways, there's something powerful in that relational exchange that is important for us to experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we also do this in cycles, is it feels like there's seasons where you're really vulnerable with God, and then you, it's like you forget everything you've learned. And then you're like, oh, I need to go back to this. And that's normal at some level. Um, it's not ideal, but uh, I'd say don't... it's common. Common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Common. Um, and so my heart is to say, look, some of you have maybe even broken out of addiction or you've experienced the love of God before, had a radical season, and then you for whatever reason walked a different way or got wounds. Go back. Just go back. Go back to the goodness of God. Um, he, he knew about this on the cross. Like, there's nothing that is in him that resists you in that. Let's even say this. Like, right now, if you're listening and, and something's hitting your heart, something's stirring in you, pause this. Take 30 seconds, whatever it takes, and just acknowledge that there's mm-hmm. a stirring in your heart going on. I'm a big fan of when there's a stirring, acknowledge it. And sometimes it only takes a few moments, but mm-hmm. absolutely, I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about this subject for a minute because this was super hard in my journey. Is I think sometimes you find yourself in leadership positions or you go, all right, I'm talking to my friends about Jesus, and you kind of take some steps backwards, and then confessing Mm. and saying, hey, I need to open up about the darkness in me to people, and that's terrifying. And one of the things I remember you and I would talk about was it's the only way to let love in. Like you have to let people love you as you are, or you'll never experience real love. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Again, we're just appropriately circling back to shame. So let's hit that real quick. Shame is identity as wrong, as broken. It's not, I made a mistake. I am a mistake. It's not, I might get hurt. It's, I will get hurt, right? It's this identity as something that is unlovable, as I currently am. And what happens is, is it, it tells you to hide. And so I've actually had, I have a sermon I've taught a handful of times that I, uh, of looking at Adam and Eve, they felt that something was wrong. They felt ashamed. They put leaves on, which means they tried to fix it on their own independently, which doesn't work. And then when that, that mask or that covering didn't work, then they hid And the reality is, is a lot of us struggle with the temptation to believe we have to stay hidden in order to stay in some form of relationship. And so that's what we're talking about. When the only answer to that is exposing that lie, I'm no good, I'm a disappointment, I will be rejected. 
Um, for me, it was things like, I'm too much. You can't handle me. Uh, I'm not important to you. The only way to combat those lies is expose them to truth, expose them to the light. And what happens is the, the shame tells you to do the opposite. It tells you to don't, re don't really tell them what's really going on. Don't really show them your weakness, your struggle, your hurt, because you will experience that negative impact. And it only builds over time and convinces you more and more and more that that is true. And you buffet yourself from being hurt. But what you're actually doing is buffet yourself from being healed and being loved. Yeah. And I want to throw this out, Chris. So if you have PTSD, you have something called triggers and you get triggered all the time. So tell me what a trigger is and how do I know when I'm having one and is there anything I can do about them? Yeah, it's funny. I really, I wanted to ask you about your triggers, but you beat me to the punch. Yeah, all right, tell so me all of yours. Are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's important, right, to understand this is going to be different for everybody. Everybody's mm -hmm. story is different. Everybody's trauma is different. But just to understand the mechanics of it is post-traumatic stress disorder means you have this traumatic experience locked in your psyche, locked within your person, and certain triggers will poke that and let it out. Certain experiences will, that emotional reality, that emotional personal experience, certain things will kind of open that door and let all that energy out into your mm -hmm. world, into your life. And that's what PTSD is. And so the question is, is what are the things that knock on that door? What are the things that poke at that door? <clears throat> what are the things that open that door? There's there, there it's such a good question, but it's such, such a there's so many potential answers. An easy, cheesy one that I'll start with for a lot of people is something called um, halt, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Um, that when you're feeling hungry, you're feeling like your needs aren't met or aren't going to be met. I, I've had to accept that I've got, this is, there it is, right? There's the shame and the vulnerability, right? I don't even want to say this out loud, but to practice what I preach, I'm going to do it, right? I've realized that for some reason in my story, which I don't fully understand, that a, the reason why I've struggled a little bit with weight gain and weight loss is that when I feel a certain degree of hunger, I immediately go into a space of, I may never eat again. I need to eat now and I need everything I can eat, which mm -hmm. is a PTSD thing, which is like, I'm feeling like my needs mm -hmm. won't, they may not be met. My next meal isn't promised. And so even though, first of all, I'm an American in a first world country, but I'm also very, very blessed. The Holy Spirit started to show me how irrational that belief is, how irrational that thought was as I saw myself shoving mm -hmm. food into my mouth to try to feel better. So hungry, angry, right? That's easy. Lonely or tired or any combination of those things can be a trigger. Mm -hmm. um, um, let me see here. There can be anything from... Like we saw this, like I mentioned this earlier with soldiers, like certain sounds in, uh, that can trigger that, right? Um, anything that's sort of audio or visual can kind of trigger that if it has some sort of semblance of a memory from that, whatever sort of mm -hmm. your brain says, hey, this thing that's happening now is similar to that thing that happened then. 
it can poke at that. Um, so yeah, feeling, feeling rejected, feeling hurt, feeling attacked, feeling punished. Um, gosh, does that help a little bit? It's, no, it's it does. Question, yeah. I, I mean, when I think of my triggers, since you brought it up, uh, there was just some thoughts coming to mind is I, so first of all, people think triggers necessarily mean flashbacks. So a flashback is I go back to the instance and that's not necessarily what most people experience. Okay. Uh, it's just this emotion that felt familiar um, and that is not really appropriate for what what's going on. Um, and so some of the things that would really hurt me <clears throat> and cause me to get deeply triggered, one is irrational cruelty. And so if I felt I was talking to my wife and she was being irrational and a little bit snippy, like it would bring up this like, ah, and, and it would feel like I'm screaming in my head. Um, my triggers could get really, really debilitating. There were times it was hard to get out of bed. Um, it, there would be times where I would be in a anger state for days um, that was just irrational. Um, I would, and I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to turn this yeah. off. And, um, I think part of dealing with these things is you are not what you believe when you're like not triggered. You are what you believe when you are triggered and like that is the time to take stuff to God. I also found it was super helpful in kind of staying in my window of tolerance is when I was not triggered was really working on renewing my mind then um, because it could keep me from going into those states sometimes. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I there there's kind of this neutral space of just, yeah, I – let my triggers, I experience them, and you want to experience them with safe people. Um, and so what's a safe person, Chris? That may, I love it, but let me say this real quick. Okay. I love, safe people is a very important topic. We'll come here's, back to this. Here, yeah. Here's a thought I've been working on. I'm, if you spend much time with me, I'm always chewing on kind of new things and new thoughts, but you just you just tapped into it and i haven't fully figured out how to put this out there on my own um my own stuff you cannot change during a crisis you can only get out of a crisis you can only get to safe change mm -hmm. happens when you're out of the crisis so for me what that means is i have a lot of people that come to me i'm a therapist they come to me in crisis and they want to change and even though I do everything I can to teach them and help them, the reality is all we're really doing is trying to move them from crisis to something that's a bit less crisis and more safe, and then to do the change. And what happens is a lot of times therapy or otherwise, as soon as the crisis is removed, we stop seeing mm -hmm. the importance of doing the work. But if you don't, if you don't figure out how to do the work outside of a crisis, then you do mm -hmm. keep coming back to that same struggle over and over and over again is that is that makes yeah sense? yeah yeah and so there's that there's that um uh maslow's hierarchy of need, needs or whatever if i reach back to my education days where basically like 
Humans are not wired to survive and and grow and adapt at the same time. It's only mm-hmm. when there, the, the, the need for survival is actually sort of decreased can we actually learn and grow and do better and do more things. Um, yeah. And that's just kind of how we're wired. So, Yeah, and I think sometimes inside of the Christian church, we go, look, hey, we're spirits and spirits can endure anything. And we forget we're actually embodied. And... Um, we actually have a hierarchy of the ways our body reacts. And the first thing your body's going to do is survive. And so when you see a hose pipe and you think it's a snake and you've already jumped before you made a rational conclusion, that is your body trying to survive, uh, just raw instinct. And so when we go to, into trauma, our body goes into survival mode And then it learns to live in survival mode. And that starts shaping our thinking. It starts shaping the way we approach God. And so knowing that about yourself and not despising it and just going, this is what I am. I'm I'm a human. I'm finite is, I think, some of the first steps in finding freedom. Like you have to stop hating what you are. Because God doesn't hate it. And so that's not an appropriate response to your finitude. Right. You wouldn't do it to a child. You wouldn't do it to your to someone you love. Right. Why why are we so cruel to ourselves? It's something I, I actually drill into my kid's head or not drill, but shouldn't drill into really kids' heads. To, yes. Something I'm trying to impart to my own kids actually, I think is exactly what you're talking about is I'll occasionally say to them, and I do this in different ways, but I'll occasionally say to them, what is the most powerful word that you can ever learn other than the name of Jesus? And the answer is, and my kids know this, is help. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to instill into my kids that the reality is we all need help all the time. And the most powerful freeing thing that I can impart to my children is that's a normal, appropriate part of life and both safe people, which we're going to come back to, and with God is, I need help. I need help doing this. I need help understanding. I need help with (laughs) this. Um, I try very, very hard to impart that to my kids because that is absolutely my story is getting help from God and from safe people is the only reason and way that I am the man that I am today for sure. So what is a safe person, Chrissy? All right, so let's talk about safe people, but I also want to come back maybe later and talk about the connection of triggers and addiction and how okay. they sort of feed yeah. off each other. So uh, when you ask me about safe people, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is I have um, a, a rule, a life hack, if you want. I call it the, the two to five rule. And I believe every person needs a minimum of two, a maximum of about five safe people or what I call um, – uh, you know, holy, holy people, holy relations, sacred, actually sacred relationships. And these are people that you can be fully vulnerable with, fully safe with, fully open with. Elijah, you're one of my five, just so you know, know. that, that, you know, through time and experience that they're, they're ultimately not going to punish you or shame you that you can be honest with them. With that saying, I would say a truly honest person, it's a mutual relationship. You can have a lot of people in your life that are very helpful and beneficial, but the best case scenario, there is a bit of a mutuality 
where you can be supportive of them also, right? That, mm-hmm. you, that you're caring for each other. You can be safe for them. They can be safe for you. So I, I, a, key, a couple key things I would say is, um, and this is in my book, by the way, uh, A Field Guide to Relationships, um, that first, this is people that you need to feel safe with, safe being that they're not going to actively pursue harm or punishing you. Number two, that you need to feel loved by them. That is, they accept you as you are. They're not only in this relationship to change you or to fix you, but they accept you as you are. Um, trying to get a little bit more practical. Um, they tell you reality. So if you bounce yeah. ideas, they're not saying what you want to hear. They're trying to be as real as they can. Um, yeah. They don't manipulate. Yeah. Both, both. yeah both to encourage you into truth, right? Mm-hmm. You're not a failure. You, you are a good dad. You are a good husband. You need to work on this, but you, you know, mm-hmm. getting out of those lies, those shame lies, but then mm-hmm. also being like, Hey dude, like, that's not cool. Like mm-hmm. you need to clean that mess up or you need to apologize. Right. Both, mm-hmm. both sides of that. And I think this is something unique about my PTSD. I think, my wife is in general a safe person, but when it came to PTSD, for a long time, she's changed, um, and I give her all the props for that. She didn't believe it existed and, like, would do things counterproductive. And so I want to talk about what do you do if you find yourself in this space and your spouse just goes suck it up or whatever and is actually a triggering component. How do you navigate some of that? Because I I think that's an important part or your kids are doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So idealistically, your spouse can be one of your safe people, Mm -hmm. yet, yet that appropriately can take time and take work Mm -hmm. because as a marriage and family therapist, I will tell you that the person that experiences the most impact cost damage of your sin, your struggle or whatever. And not that PTSD is a sin. Absolutely. That's not what I'm saying, but is caught up in the struggle of your PTSD is your spouse. Sure. And so some, some of that, the reality is, is that, they're not going to fully be able to be the safest person. Well, it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to be as safe as you may need while they're also trying to be gracious and patient and understand and deal with your struggles and, and what you bring to the table. Um, so, okay. So what do you do about that? I think <sighs> seek professional help individually and as a couple, I would actually rec- recommend that. A good therapist, a good counselor should be able to help you both understand that the patterns and the struggle in the relationship that both of you are contributing to that. So to get out of that imbalance that one person's the bad guy and one person's the good guy. I have met with thousands of people and I've never seen that be the case. Um, A lot of people don't like that, but that's the deal. It takes two to tango. One person is obviously usually more clearly the bad guy because behaviorally, but other forms of like codependency and things like that can be just as corruptive to the relationship. Um, just put the lid back on that can of worms. Um, 
So yeah, get some help so you can get some support for you each other in and through that. If they are a safe person, then there should be some degree of an ability between the two of you or with a counselor to talk about how you affect each other and how they positively affect you and how they negatively affect you and to work and strategize in and around those issues mm -hmm. and those triggers <clears throat> so that you can eventually develop the language of saying like, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I feel triggered. I know I'm not in a good space right now. Or develop the language for them to be able to say, hey, I love you, but I can tell something's going on. That sounds good, Elijah, what I just said. And I do that with people, but that takes a long time to get there. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To be able to get to the point where you can hear each other and support each other in that. But it's important to be able to do that work. On the other hand, or also at times, it's okay to kind of realize that I or they may not be really ready to do that. That I need right. to respect that they don't know they're not ready, that I've hurt them too much, or they're too hurt by me to really go there. And for now, I'm gonna do my work and I'm gonna learn and I'm gonna grow. And although in some ways they're a safe person, in some of these areas they're not safe. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna do the work I need to do to help us get to the point where that could be more productive. Mm -hmm. I think I believe also everything I just said, but that's really loaded stuff. Yeah, all, all of it's loaded. Um, I would also add in, in the spousal relationship is you can allow yourself when you go so far outside of your window of tolerance for so long, get re-traumatized. And so there were relationships in my life where I had to tone back exposure. And yeah. especially in my spousal relationship, uh, for a time where I'm like, I'm not being intimate with you, not the sexual type of intimacy, but the like well, heart no. intimacy where I'm going, I need to pace what you can tolerate and not manipulate you. I don't lie to you or, or whatever. I'm just trying to go. And, and it's hard because you crave that level of intimacy um, but scripture's clear, you need to guard your heart because um, that's the wellspring of life. And one of the best things I think both of us did as a couple is there's just, and I don't think we said it together, but we just said, I'm not trying to fix you anymore. I'm fixing me. And that's what fixes marriages. It's not my wife's you know, hurting my heart and how do I fix her? It's Preach. what do I need to do to be the man that I want to be? And it shifts the whole family. And I, I think that's very important. Um, and sometimes yeah, you I, have to develop character in a season where the other person's character is not as high. That's right. Yeah. There, there, you know, sometimes what will happen is, one person will grow and then the person will catch up and then you should kind of take turns in and through that ultimately. But mm -hmm. yeah, before I even fully understand it, I remember saying early, early, early in this that, you know, I used to use the analogy that a marriage is like cogs and you change the direction of one cog, it's going to affect the other. Or you can use the analogy of a dance. You, your marriage is a dance. 
if one person changes how they're dancing, it's going mm -hmm. to impact the other person. The reality is, is there may be a little bump bumpiness, right? That that's not always a smooth transition, but ultimately, yes, it only takes one to change a relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, what other thoughts are popping into your mind, Mr. Rogers? Yeah, that's good. Um, I'll just say this as far as uh, safe people and especially in the context of intimate relationships and even partner marriage relationships is tr maybe with a counselor and with help, learning the value of being able to be get to the point where you can be honest with each other about how and where you do feel safe and how and where you don't feel safe. And approaching that in a way that both of you work on that and understand that both of you feel the same way. Like mm -hmm. you may not feel some safe in some ways with your partner. The reality is, is they feel the same way and maybe different and different ways in different places and trying to be open to work, um, to work on that. Okay. So that's that. This is an easy segue to triggers and addiction as well. Right? So Let's try, to, let's try to dig into how triggers, because they can be situational and relational, can also impact addiction and addiction recovery. So I didn't say this earlier. Let me say it now. You, you hinted at this. I, I've been, I'm a recovering addict myself. I've been working with addictions for 20 years plus. I'm a marriage and family therapist with an emphasis uh, or an additional um, on addictions counseling. I'm super passionate about addiction. My next book I'm going to write when God releases me is a holistic approach to addiction counseling, uh, addiction recovery. Sorry. Um, I do. I'm only going to say this quickly. Understand and appreciate the neurological and biological reality to addiction. Sure. I'm not going to go to it here and now, but there is absolutely scientific reality, biology in the driving force of addiction and how that impacts the struggle okay so i want to make sure i don't sound too much imbalanced or like a quack when i no. don't talk about that right now but i want to say that to me all addiction in its origin and throughout is driven by emotional relational needs that have gone that have gotten hurt or unmet and addiction is how we're trying to cope or manage with that Mm -hmm. That's always the case. Now, I may become chemically dependent on something in the interim of my coping and then overcoming. I've got to also now deal with the chemical dependency, whether it's neurological through pornography or it's literal through a drug. I do have to deal with that. But the reason why that addiction took hold of me is it's because it made me feel better. It was something I was mm -hmm. able to use to temporarily escape or numb or be distracted from the pain emotionally, relationally, and, 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 and even spiritual that I carry all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts, questions, objections about no, that? No, I am. I, I, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, goodness sakes. So, those issues, those emotional, relational, and spiritual issues ultimately cause create shame right so back to the shame issue wherever you have an addiction you have shame this is a one-for-one -one reality for me um 
And so what happens is the only way to overcome the addiction is to overcome the shame, which means it needs to be exposed to save people, right? Full circle to where we're at. So what happens if there's people in your lives, your spouse, your friends, your boss, your community, your church, the theology you're teaching are actually triggers and causing you not to feel safe or not feel loved or cause you to be afraid and want to hide. Mm-hmm. So if that makes any sense to you, to you, Elijah, you tell me what personalizing what I just said. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that it becomes this cycle where if you're already addicted, the relationships can all be a catalyst for you hungering out of your triggers to want to go back into addiction due to those relationships. And so I I think that, you know, I, I certainly experienced that cycle. Um, and there is and we're not saying, hey, you're not responsible for the choices you're making. You're not free in the like philosophical yeah. sense. You're still responsible and they still come with consequences. But if you can start understanding at a psychological level, a biological level, what's going on, it also can empower you as you start making better choices. Um, and... I think one of the things that I see happen to people is they let their knowledge of this cycle become a it's almost something that keeps them in bondage rather than is a catalyst for setting them free because they just go, well, I'm in a bad family and things are hard. Let me keep uh, being addicted. And I, I think that to transverse that danger, we have to say um, there's hope. If Jesus resurrected, uh, nothing's impossible. And there is power in God, and God has a solution. And we can't we can't throw hope out ever, or there's no motivation. Um, and so... How do you turn the hope up in people who are in really bad spots, Chris? Is there anything that – because you have to have a vision to get out. You have to have the future can be better. Yeah. And and I think, you know, it fits. Like how how do you give hope to somebody when the carnage of their struggle – is causing the other people in their life to to actually not give them hope, but despair and discouragement, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. I'm not even over. But uh, there, there's a handful of answers. Um, so, I, first of all, am in love with Jesus. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus very, very much. And a lot of people I work with are Christian and want that to be a part of our conversation. But sure. I do not feel released to God to always only be forthright in spirituality and theology with my clients. So I have a large amount of clients that come to me that either a don't want anything to do with Christianity and spirituality, Mm -hmm. even though they don't really realize they're experiencing me as a spiritual being in that, but whatever. Um, 
And so I've got to figure, I have to find ways to encourage them. Then there's people that are Christian, say they're Christian, believe they're Christian, mm-hmm. and have no conception of what it is to actually <laughs> have much of a theological and a spiritual conversation. And so figure out how to help all those people, if that makes sense. Um, people who do have s- decent theology and a decent relationship from God, it involves things, which this takes time, but it involves things like a encouraging them to the through the truth. All people, I share versions of my mm-hmm. story and what I've been able to overcome and how I overcome that. So the testimony of my experience mm-hmm. very much is the testimony of Christ, right? The prophecy of Christ and giving them hope. I've heard, mm-hmm. I've seen people be encouraged just from my own story, but also things like turning them towards truth in the scripture. I've, I've either done it with people or you can search she, uh, sheets like this online <clears throat> or, or encourage people to do their own work of what are promises, what are truths in the Bible. Journal them, write them down, and learn to feast upon those when you're feeling discouraged and when you're, when you're feeling like you're just believing lies. Little, it's actually a little bit of a biblical CBT, if you know what I mean by that, mm-hmm. of replacing lies with truth. Then I also talk to people and come back to safe people and teaching them what safe people look like, who can be safe, who who wants to be a safe people, mm-hmm. how to find safe people in their life, to do the same thing. Like who is one, two, three people you can seek to speak truth and encouragement into you, right? That, that can believe in you, that see and have hope for you and, and can breathe life into you. Those relationships are vital. Again, going back to how you got to, find those safe people and expose those lies to the light. As we were saying earlier, Um, I could say uh, probably several more. The next one would be finding some sort of recovery or support group. Right. Um, um, Let let me tangent or I should say soapbox for a moment. There are a lot of really good, really helpful groups out there. And there are a lot of not helpful not productive groups out there. And unfortunately that is not determined on whether or not they're Christian groups. Exactly. And, um, it's not the program. You can go into one program and group over here in the same room is great. And the other one's terrible. Um, and I would also say for me, this was a part of my process is, I really had to wrestle with the resurrection at an apologetic level and go, do I think this is real? Because there are moments when there is no other hope, but God will resurrect me from the dead. And that may be enough to keep people going, especially if you're in a suicidal state or, you know, the bottom has fallen out on your life is just, you know, the Bible talks about rejoicing and the rejoicing is reminding ourselves Jesus is alive. And if he is alive, there is some glimmer of hope that the things I do in this life may not give me the positive results or fix what I want, but that in the age to come, they matter. And, um, I think also one of the things that was super helpful is learning the connection between my body and my triggers. Um, Mm. Exercise helped a ton. 
when I get triggered sometimes, if Allison will give me a three-minute back rub, like it can turn them off. And so um, I encourage people to learn about trauma release exercises um, and to work out um, your – yeah. It, it can turn the anxiety off. It can turn the depression off. Um, Will you indulge me in a nerdy clinical moment here? Go to town, my friend. All right. So what most people don't understand is that what an anti-anxiety or anti-depression um, medication, which I'm not saying I'm against, but just the basic science that sure. most people don't understand is an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, whatever, right? right? What most people don't understand is all that medication is doing is helping you take advantage of the chemicals that are already in your system. They're right. not giving you what you need. They're helping you take advantage of what you need. Mm-hmm. They're helping you take advantage of serotonin, neoprenephrine, and dopamine, right? Mm-hmm. These are the chemicals that make you feel good. They make you feel mm-hmm. better. They make you feel happier and brighter and more aware and more clear-headed. Mm-hmm. If you're struggling with anxiety and depression and you feel or believe and have sought counsel and need an anti-anxiety, anti-depression medication, don't let me get in the way of that. Mm -hmm. Yet understand this. The best drug out there is in your body and it is released through laughter, sex, and exercise. Laughter, sex, and exercise releases all those endorphins. Now, let me just say... The sex and maybe even the laughter. The sex, you're, you got to feel good about it, right? So right. pornography, affairs, sure. you know, the, the, the feeling of conviction and unhealth of that is going to ruin the impact, right? But ultimately, healthy sex, healthy laughter, healthy appropriate exercise releases in huge amounts into your body the very drugs you need to deal with anxiety and medication. And that's, and that's what you're talking about. So one of the things I want to talk about now is how important self-respect is in this process mm. as we start breaking out um, of addiction. I think one of the things that as we're talking about serotonin, um, your body is hardwired when you set small goals and you achieve them to release a little bit of self uh, serotonin. And so developing character is a part of this process. And it's a hard part because you have to start really, really small. Um, when I'm teaching people about developing integrity, I'll say, can you promise you'll whatever pick a candy bar and eat that every day for a week, but don't miss a day and write it down. And people can't do that sometimes. Like they'll say, of course I can do that. Um, But developing little bits of integrity actually releases serotonin. And um, I think that's a part of this process. I think that's a part of the spiritual formation process is letting God invite us into integrity growing uh, things is super important. Um, do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I think that's, I think for a lot of reasons, I don't know if I fully knew the serotonin thing. Um, mm-hmm. I do know that learning to partner with God mm-hmm. in what he's doing 
and growing up, which is singularly probably my most passionate topic, um, <clears throat> doing that actually is so encouraging. Like when you do mm-hmm. start to learn what it is to partner with God and the Holy Spirit, it is, it is, uh, there's love that you're feeling through that process, but also there's mm-hmm. like self healthy self-confidence, like, healthy self-value like what look what is possible in my life look at what i'm capable of doing look look what's happening and it breeds hope and encouragement and it and it starts to tackle that shame and absolutely is a very very healthy Mm -hmm. important part of it it just makes me think and i think it's what you're saying actually but um you you got to learn to start small you've got to learn to and my experience is god is the same actually um learn to, you know, what, what is one or two steps ahead of where I'm at right now? And let me move in that direction Mm -hmm. and make that sort of a new normal instead of trying to get all the way to where I think I should be, or feel like I have to be and setting an unrealistic goal, which is so discouraging. Mm -hmm. Um, The last thing I would say to that is some of us, um, I don't know if this is a gift mix thing or whatever this is, but some of us, um, become so consumed or too aware, overly aware of what needs to be changed or what we need to be, what we need to, um, what we need to work on that we try to, we feel this need to try to fix it all. And it goes back to our conversation earlier about dealing with sin and grace, Elijah, which is, um, let me see. I haven't talked about this in a minute is I, I, I've had to learn probably still learning to partner with the, the thing that, that um, I call a point of conviction. What's the conviction? What's the thing the Holy Spirit is, is highlighting and showing me I need to work on? Not what I want to focus on, not what I think has to go, but what the Holy Spirit is showing me. <laughs> and when I learn to partner with that thing, again, it's usually more realistic and, and manageable. That's where the most potent amount of grace and help is coming from in that area, right? Um but what I've realized is, and I don't, I'd have to think about an example, but there have been times where I yielded to, okay, this is what you're saying you want to help me with. And as I, as I partnered with the Holy Spirit in the area that God was saying he's focused on, there may be issues and trouble and sin in other areas, but I learned to partner with God in that area. As that healing really started to work, it actually affected those other areas. Right. The Holy Spirit knew that this is a more root cause. This is a more driving issue to all these other things. And I was trying to like squash little, uh, you know, little uh, hedgehogs, these little things out here, instead of understanding that this is really what it's out and learning to partner with God. And that has actually made the biggest impact. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a theological issue for most people is they can say, hey, Jesus, my savior, I have to trust him. And we don't go, the Holy Spirit's my sanctifier. And I have to trust him for my sanctification is th- there is a person who's who can do it and it's not me. And I yeah. need dependence, not independence right. from the Holy Spirit. And yes, there is a personal will part in this, but it is minimal compared to finding out what the Holy Spirit is doing. And a lot of people out there go, look, I I don't feel God. I'm not hearing his voice. Um, Sometimes you hear it when the preacher's preaching and you just feel this conviction to go do something or you're reading a Bible verse. Sometimes you get pictures in your mind. Um, 
But one of the things, Chris and I, for probably the last 10 years, how, how, when do we start our small group together? Uh, we just decided it's been three years. No, 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 no. The one at the oh, house. Oh, no, no, no. The, 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 oh, gosh. Okay, so I've been here for 10 years, like next month. Okay, so, so this was back three years before that, at least. Okay, so 13, 14 years ago, Chris and I were in a small group, and what we would do is just dial down and wait for the Holy Spirit to speak and then go and do what he said. And uh, sometimes he would speak and tell us things we needed to work on during the week, and we'd come back and share that with each other. And it was just this season of breakthrough. And I think that's one of our core values, and you had mentioned it earlier, is finding out what the Father's doing and joining him. Um, and the way you do that is through focus, and focus is the intentional elimination of distractions where you go, I'm not trying to do other stuff. And I think in the sanctification process, finding out what the Spirit is saying is so important. And can you talk about that and maybe some some of your ideas on that? Yeah, just to get, I can give that scripture verse again, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, just as a, as a theological, mm -hmm. biblical reference. It says that we overcome our struggles, our sin, by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, I'm going to force the issue that says uh, it's not saying we, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the one who has already perfected everything in us. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is the author and the one that is perfecting. The one is doing the work of bringing us to his likeness. I believe that's what the scripture is saying. And I think it does release us to appreciate and understand that this is a process of sanctification. This is a process of growth, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, oh gosh. I, I don't know, Elijah, if I can simplify that in my brain real quick. I do know that some examples of, this is going to be difficult. Some examples uh, for me are when I partner with the Holy Spirit, when I partner with God, often that's getting um, confirmation with my safe people, right? Do they, do they discern that? Do they confirm that? Do they feel like that's true too? Mm -hmm. the hearing from God too, getting that, that witness to that, uh, what I believe God is saying. Um, there's also like, is there grace there? Grace both in like, do I feel encouraged in that area? Mm -hmm. Do I feel strength and, and, uh, um, and, and, and new power in that area? Do I feel revela revelation in that area? You know, how is God actually, where is God actually speaking to me in the different ways that he provides through grace is one of the ways for me of to kind of discerning where God is and what he's doing. Whereas what I know for myself that when I've the things that I want to focus focus on and harp on, I just get increasingly discouraged. I get frustrated. I, I feel I lose hope. I get you know I I get upset. Um, does that make any sense? So mm -hmm. even to the degree of do I have do I feel some increased hope in this that God is doing a thing, or do I feel just deflated and discouraged? And I'm tempted to hate myself and and beat myself up for this in this area. That to me is a big part of of how to do that and why that's important? Mm -hmm. I think also it's what we were talking about is lowering your expectations and accepting the grace God's giving. And sometimes it's kind of like, 
one of the things that I found is appro- approaching God in faith is I treat the truths of Scripture like they're theological facts. So Jesus resurrected is a fact. The Holy Spirit is deposited in me is a fact. God is here now is a fact. And when I turn my mind to those truths, there's always grace. He's always doing something in my life. It positions me to receive. Um, And I'm not trying to work something up. It's just I'm trying to go, this is the reality of the situation. And when I renew my mind with those thoughts, oftentimes my heart aligns with it. And it just opens up to God, and I can see what he's doing in the real world. I think that's so important. So, Yeah, I think, I think you're talking a little bit. Another way of describing that is what disciplines are or what the point mm-hmm. of disciplines are. Uh, there is a common misunderstanding or misuse of discipline as ultimately works, which is I do disciplines to make God happy with me or to please or appease God or to get him to work on my behalf. I think is not going to work. Whereas disciplines for me are how I refine my focus. It's how I intentionally position myself to receive what is already available to me, how I position myself, how I open myself up, how I, Hebrews uh, 12, how I keep my eyes on Jesus, right? The author and perfecter is so that I can both, I can receive what is already available and what is already happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave our audience with? Oh, yeah. So I, I would say I was thinking about this, like, you know, trying to think of the, the Jerry Springer final, final moment sort of thing, the wrap up, right? Like PTSD, complex PTSD is a real thing. You're not alone. Um, it's okay that you struggle with this. You can get help. There is hope. There is healing available to you. Um, you, you, the best way to do that is to start being honest with what it is, get professional help, talk to your friends about it. Um, let people into that struggle, let people into that work on not feeling ashamed of that, learning on not um, beating yourself up or hating yourself for that and, and do the work of letting people into that and partnering with God and partnering with, uh, with safe people. Another thing I would say, cause you, you mentioned this earlier is this is another one of my new thoughts. It's, it's a work in progress. This feels a little cheesy, the language, and I may try to find a better way of putting it, but we talk so much, especially nowadays about self-care, right? I've got to have boundaries and I've got to have self-care. I'm a big fan of, of boundaries and self-care. I call it limits in my book um, instead of instead of boundaries. But I'm, I'm very um, interested in that. But a thought that I've had recently is before you can have self-care, before you're going to be able to effectively take care of yourself, consider yourself, um, that's actually it. You have, to con- you have to have self-consideration. And a lot of people want to do the work of self-care of I need to say no more, I need to take a day off, but they don't take time to consider themselves. What do I need? Why do I need it? Why is it important that I need these things? And they don't take the time and space to consider themselves, where they're at, what they need, and why they need this work. And if you, I found that if people don't first work on considering themselves, 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here I am. This is who I am. This is what I need. They're not going to be very consistent on self-care and creating those changes because they're more crisis-focused than self-focused about this is who I am and this is what I really need. And I think I trend in a very theological, intellectual space. And you can do this stuff and keep your mind on. You can ask these hard questions and you're not throwing your theology out for self-help. It's, it's a part of your spiritual path. And I think when we divorce these two, that's when our spirituality becomes toxic is we're whole persons. God redeems the whole person. And um, I think that's super important. Well, thank you, Chris, for coming on. Um, you guys need to check out his book. It's called A Field Guide to Relationships, and it's available on Amazon.